on a hill, far away, stood an old rugged cross. The emblem of suffering and shame. And I, I love that old cross. Where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. I love that cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. You know, we're in this series from the shadow of the cross, and last weekend, if you were with us on your way out, we gave you one of these crosses to take with you. And if you weren't here last weekend or if you lost it this week, uh, you can pick up another one at the, at the information center. And throughout the week, other people have shown me their cross and necklaces that were made with crosses and different things. But the idea was that you would take this and put it somewhere where you would see it every day, whether it's in your pocket or your purse or your dashboard or your sink or your desk, wherever it might be. That you would take it, not as a kind of a, a gimmicky way to remember the series. That's not the intent of that at all. Not in any way to be kind of like a good luck charm. Not even as a way of, of a, a seasonal or historical reminder. The reason that I want this cross before us every single day is because of the personal reality that it represents. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes these words, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, and here it is, nailing it to the cross. It's that reality for us personally that makes something so horrible as crucifixion so beautiful for us. Something so agonizing that would bring such incredible relief for us. Something that was for the guilty that allows us to be forgiven. An instrument of death that gives us life. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. About 26, 2700 years ago, 6700 BC, in uh, Greek mythology, there was a story that began circulating. More myth than truth. But what's interesting about this story is that over the years, at least the uh, kind of the summation of this story has made its way into even our vernacular and is actually used uh, quite frequently in, in our day, in our, in our language, even though it's 26, 2700 years ago of a myth. And the, the phrase that is used so often today is swan song. It's a swan song. It's her swan song. It's his swan song. And the myth that was created six or 700 years before Christ was that this, this swan, this beautiful, large waterfowl, which is relatively quiet most of its life, beautiful to, to look at, but not much to listen to, not a, a singing swan at all. But the myth was that in its dying moments, the swan would sing this most beautiful melody as it's passing from life. Now, while that's more myth than truth, this series is looking at this concept that Jesus sings the most beautiful songs in his final hours. In his last hours, when he begins to say these statements, six hours he hangs on the cross, seven statements he makes, concise, short statements with profound impact. And as I said last week, we are going to take one statement each week as it leads up to Easter. And today we're going to look at the second saying that Jesus 
uttered on the cross. I will say this right now. It's going to take us a minute to get there. So hang with me. If in 25 minutes, 30 minutes from now you're saying, when are we going to get, we will get there. I promise you. This saying that he gives on the cross, this second saying was like beautiful music to the ears of a dying man, from a dying man to a dying man. About the same time that the myth of the swan song, which was more myth than truth, was being fabricated, about the same time, six or 700 years before Christ, there was a prophecy that was not myth at all, but a complete truth. And Isaiah gives this prophecy about Christ on the cross. Side note, if you ever read Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, written 1,700 years before Jesus was born, and see the accuracy at which they predicted how Jesus would die and what would happen on the cross, it's phenomenal, the fulfillment of the, of the prophecies that were written about this event hundreds, even 1,000 years beforehand. But one of them in Isaiah 53, we looked at this briefly last week, verse 12, says this. He, Jesus, bore out, uh, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He was with, numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many. And while that's true, today what I want to do is I want to spend some time looking at Three specific transgressors. While, while this is for all of us, this is for all who have sinned, which is all of us, I want us to start looking at three specific transgressors, three crosses of three transgressors. These guys might seem like just kind of a, a passing bit part, filler parts in the gospel narrative, but what's interesting and striking to me is that these three transgressors, all four gospel writers include them in their gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them talk about these three transgressors. And while two of them uh, are probably more famous when we talk about the cross because they were hanging on either side of Jesus, I think it's important before we get to that, that second saying of Jesus on the cross is that we look at the third transgressor. The third transgressor who was supposed to be on the third cross, supposed to be the man in the middle, supposed to be on the cross that Jesus hung on. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. And uh, we're going to be in Matthew and in Luke. But in Matthew 27, verse 13, 15, excuse me, it says, Now it was the governor's custom. The governor is Pilate. Pilate is not Jewish. He works for Rome. He is Roman. And probably as a governor of Rome, Judea would not have been the sweet spot. It would not have been the job everyone wanted. He probably did not want to be there. While the Jewish people were fine, they didn't like Rome. Rome didn't like them. They tolerated each other. There were no great cities. There was no Athens there. There was no Corinth there. There was no Alexandria there. There was just Jerusalem, which was big for the Jews, but not for the Romans. And maybe there were times that he would go to the Decapolis down to Betshean or whatever, just to get a little bit of taste of home. But here he is, and his role is to kind of keep the peace. Now, there was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, but it was a heavily enforced peace. It wasn't something that happened just grassroots. It was enforced. You be peaceful or else it won't be peaceful for you. And that was his job. Well, there was a custom that he had that every year at the feast, now there were multiple feasts, but this is talking specifically about the Passover. The governor's custom at the feast of the Passover was to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. 
This was a way that he would just kind of throw them a bone saying, hey, I'm not such a bad guy. Let me give you guys a little favor this time of year. It's a big celebration for you. We've got some prisoners. Why don't you tell me, and, and we'll just kind of, we'll give a freebie. We'll give a pass. We'll give a mulligan to one of these individuals. You just tell me which one it is. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Some of you know this story and where it's going. But here's this criminal one of the prisoners, Barabbas. Might have been just another, another criminal. No, no. This says something different about him. Some of you who are under 55 years of age may remember Biggie. Biggie Smalls. Notorious B-I-G. It was notorious. Had a reputation, a bad reputation. This is notorious Baraba. That was supposed to be funny. <laughs> Barabbas is notorious. It's interesting, of the three transgressors we're going to look at, he's the only one that's name is mentioned because everyone knew his name. Everyone knew who he was. Everyone knew his reputation. And if you look through all four of the Gospels, you begin to piece together why he's in prison. Because he was a rebel. He was a revolutionary. He tried to, to mount an insurrection against Rome, and in the process... Someone or some ones were killed, and so now he has been imprisoned because of insurrection and murder. And for Rome, this was something that they would not tolerate at all. This is something Pilate would not tolerate. If these Jews got out of control, Pilate's head was on the block. He had to keep them under control. I'm, I'm working my way through uh, Tom Holland's tome, this 800-page book called Dominion, and in it he talks about how how Rome so wanted to keep the peace in these kind of settings that if there was ever an uprising, the best way to, to deter any of that happening in the future was to make sure that the leader of that uprising was caught and publicly crucified, not only as a punishment, but more important, to send a message, don't cross Rome. Barabbas had done this very thing. There's no question. He was a dead man walking. In Pilate's eyes, probably, Barabbas was public enemy number one. Sorry for all the references. And it says he was called Barabbas. Now, if you've been around here any length of time, you may remember when we talk about biblical names that there are some that start with Bar, Barnabas, or Jesus calls Peter Simon Bar-Jonas, or there's Bartholomew. The, the word bar it, 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 usually that's not, a, that's not a name, it's a title, it's a, it's a description. So Barnabas, when we studied the book of Acts, Barnabas, it was, that was not his name. His name was Joseph, he was from Cyrene, but there was something about the way he lived his life, something about his character that caused the disciples to nickname him Barnabas. Bar means son of, Barnabas means son of encouragement. So when you get to Barabbas, it doesn't say his name was Barabbas, he was called Barabbas. That's not his name. In fact, some of your translations might have an asterisk there, or they might even have a, a little footnote, because many people believe that his given name was a common name in Judea, that his given name was Jesus, but he was called Barabbas, son of Abbas, Abba, Abba, Abba. Does that sound familiar? Not talking about a Swedish pop band. Abba. What is Abba? Father. That 
He's called the son of the father, and some would say that maybe it was because his father was a priest or, or, or maybe he was a synagogue ruler or leader or, or, or a prophet even, but he's the son, he's the son of the father, but he's notorious. Well, back to the feast and Pilate's custom, he's going to allow one of these prisoners to go free. So we find in Matthew uh, 27, verse 21, he says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They answered, crucify him. Crucify him. And the text goes on to say that Barabbas was released. This was supposed to be Barabbas' last day on earth. He knew that. And it all changed. He was released. The Bible never mentions him again. There's all kinds of church history traditions of what actually happened to Barabbas. Some say that, that later um, that he went and was actually at the foot of the cross. We don't know. There's nothing that backs that up. Some say that he became a follower of Jesus later on after the resurrection and actually began to, to work for the kingdom of God and was martyred later in life. We don't know any of those things for a fact. But one thing we do know for sure is that while it's completely unbeknownst to Pilate and completely unbeknownst to, to Barabbas and completely unbeknownst, unbeknownst to the religious leaders or the crowd that are chanting for him, what happened there on that day was a snapshot, was a microcosm, was a little thumbnail of something that was happening on a global, colossal, eternal, spiritual scale. And that was this, the substitution of a life lived perfectly for lives lived perfectly. Poorly. This happened with Barabbas. It was happening for the world. Here's Barabbas, called the son of the father, who is guilty, condemned to die, and rightfully so. And here is Jesus, called the Christ, the Messiah, who is sinless. And they exchange places. If you've ever heard the term substitutionary atonement, Barabbas is the first one that experienced it even before the crucifixion. The substitution. And it happens here. Now, we could go on talking about Barabbas for a long time. There's a lot of cool stuff that we could go into on that. Don't have time for that. But his story is our story, and it is the story of the cross. So I said there were three transgressors. Let's go to the other two and let's take a look at their life. And it's in looking at their life that we will hear these statements of the statement of Jesus from, uh, from the cross. Luke 23 now, Luke 23, verse 32. It says, two other men, here's, here's our other ones, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha, the place called the skull, there they crucified him with, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Notice, that's all we hear about these guys. We don't know their names like we know Barabbas. Now, they may have been a part of Barabbas' clan. They may have gotten in on that whole res, uh, you know, insurrection and, and the revolt. They may have been arrested with him. They may have been some of the ones that killed some of the people. We don't know. They don't even have names. We don't even know what they've done. It's like they're just some good old boys, never meaning no harm. 
Beats all you never saw. They've been in trouble with the law since the day they were born. They're making their way the only way they know how. But that's just a little bit more than the law will allow. <laughs> so they're not just run-of-the-mill criminals. They're not just kind of, you know, I swiped something from Safeway kind of guys. They've been condemned. They've done something so egregious that they're going to be crucified. Common criminals didn't get crucified. They got locked up. They got sold as slaves. They didn't get crucified. Only the worst of the worst got crucified. Whatever these guys had done, it had gotten them to the point where the whole world says, you are not worthy of using our air, our resources, and our space on this planet. You don't get to be a part of the human race anymore. You are worthless. We are done with you. We don't want you around. And so they find their end. They're hanging on a cross. Now, I've got to believe that that was not their goal. I've got to believe these guys were not in trouble with the law since the day they were born. I've got to believe that somewhere they had other dreams and other aspirations for their life. They had, they had plans. They had, had things they wanted to do. But something happened. And I wonder if, if you'll just give me some grace for just a few minutes to maybe put a little bit of flesh on the bones of these two nameless criminals. Let me kind of just fabricate. Hypothetical. This is not biblical at all. It is it is biblical. No biblical basis for what I'm getting ready to say at all. So don't walk in here and say, well, Pastor Bob said, yes, I did, but not as a Bible truth, okay? This isn't even, it isn't even speculation. It's imagination. Give me a few minutes to just build a possible scenario of these two criminals. In fact, just to help us keep track of them, let me give them names. One of them we're going to call Mateo, and the other one we're going to call Demas. What if? What if Mateo and Demas grew up in a working class neighborhood? They knew each other from childhood. They were neighbors. Their parents were, their dads were hardworking. They, they weren't wealthy at any, in fact, they were probably on the lower end of the social economic scale. Mateo, he came from a home that was not devout, but they would go to the synagogue pretty regularly and observe the festivals and the, the feast every year, but they weren't terribly devout. But in this home, Mateo was the middle child of five. And he had two older siblings that were a couple years older than him and two younger siblings that were a few years younger. And he, he kind of felt like he was the outlier, as middle children often feel. And the oldest child was a teenager, the youngest was a toddler, and, and there was Mateo. He was a good kid, good kid. And one day, Mateo's dad got sick. Nothing serious, just a, just a cough. He said, I'll be fine. The cough never went away. And one day, he saw his dad coughing through a kerchief, and there was blood. And Mateo's dad died, leaving his mom as a widow with five children to care for. She had no education, no skills, in a culture that not look very well on a widow like this. She did whatever she could to keep her family well fed. And how many nights they sat around the dinner table and the kids were eating and 
Mateo's mom would say, I, I'm so full. I, I was picking on things as I was preparing the meal for you guys. I, I'm not going to eat anymore. And they knew. She hadn't eaten. There was barely enough food for the kids. And it got worse. And one day a man came by the house and said he would pay her if she would work for him. And she struggled. She rest, she, didn't, she hated the idea. But she had to take care of her kids. And she agreed. And while she hated it, this employer would bring men by the house, usually in the evening, strange men. And she would get paid. And little Mateo heard and saw things that no child should ever be exposed to. Demas, on the other hand, Demas was an only child, but secretly he envied Mateo. Because while he had a dad, his, his dad was given to the bottle and would get drunk and would get mean, and the things he would say, and the way he would knock Mateo around, the way he would treat Mateo or Demas's mom, and he hated his dad. And Demas and Mateo, his neighbors, they had a kind of a secret sign, a secret signal, a secret whistle they would do. And on those nights when Demas's dad was drunk, and Mateo's mom has another man in the room, they would go to the window and whistle out the signal. And they would sneak out together, not to be mischievous, just to get a little respite from what's going on in their home. And they knew all the back alleys and they could go out through the gate and they would get out to this olive grove in the middle where it was clear where the olive press was and they would sit out there and at nights they would look up at the stars. And at times they would talk about their dreams of what they were going to do when they got older. For Mateo, he never wanted to be poor. He says, when I get older, I'm going to be a I'm going to be a man who has caravans of camels. I'm going to bring silk and spices from the east. I'm going to bring things from Egypt. I am going to trade. I'm going to have more money than anyone. I'm never going to be poor. And for Demas, money didn't interest him. He was so tired of the abuse of power of those and the injustice that came of what he experienced in his home, the way his dad treated him and his mom. And he began to look around and say, that's kind of what Rome does as well. And he says, when I get older, I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to make sure that our people are set free. I'm going to make sure maybe, maybe I'm even going to overthrow all of Rome. We're going, to, we're going to see this. And some nights, they would leave the olive grove and they would go over, and especially when the moon was full. And there was this area with this cliff with this porous limestone with these caves in it. And when the moon hit it just right, it looked like a skull. And they would try to scare each other with stories about the skull. And one night, Demas' dad was drunk, and Mateo's mom had a person in the house, and they gave the signal, and out they went. And Demas knew. Demas knew Mateo never got enough to eat. And as they were walking through an alley, there was an old man who was unloading food and produce from his little cart. And there was a raisin cake there. And Demas took it. 
And David said, what are you doing? And the man came out and said, hey. And David said, run. Being younger and more agile and knowing all the back roads, they ran, outran this old man very quickly. And they kept running. He said, keep running, keep running. They got to the opening in the olive grove and there with their legs so tired and their heart pounding, their lungs burning, there they were. And they had the raisin cake and they split it and they began to eat it and they knew it was wrong. But it was so exhilarating. It's like they had control over something in their life. They felt more alive than they'd ever felt before. It was the first time they ever stole anything. But it wasn't the last. Oh, there was the melons, the chicken, the goat that they just let go. The time when they stole the donkey cart went joyriding and ended up in the, the ditch. But it became a lifestyle. And it became all that they did. And as they grew older, it wasn't just melons and chickens and raisin cakes. And there came a day where they crossed a line that was too far. And they were caught and arrested. And now they find themselves carrying a cross by that old skull they used to look at when they were kids and dream about the future to be crucified. This would be the last day of their life. It would be the worst day of their life. And at this point, no one cares about them. No one is filing for a stay of execution. No one is trying to get an appeal. The government has says we're done with you. Society wants nothing to do with them. Their families have been shamed and embarrassed by them for years. They have considered them dead. No one wants them at all. No one that is except God. The one who formed them in their mother's womb. The one who breathed life into them. The one who had pursued them all the days of their life and divinely orchestrated that on the last day of their life, their lives would intersect with the very one who could change everything for them. And there they hang on the cross. And in the middle is this man. And maybe they thought, we were with Barabbas. Where's he? Who's this guy? But all of life and all the unfairness of life and anger of, of hardships and family and God himself. Hearing all of those around who are jeering and mocking, their anger begins turning in their last moments to this man on the middle cross. Matthew records it this way, 2744. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Their anger at this man, Jesus, how, they don't even know him. How would they know even how to mock him? Maybe they'd heard about him, or maybe it was what everybody else was saying as they were gathered around. They were hearing that and just parroting that as well. Maybe it was that sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. 
But they just begin to pour out their verbal venom, especially, especially Demas. In Luke 23, verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. You must be a terrible disappointment to your followers. Oh, you're just another would-be Messiah, another Savior. You're no different than Barabbas. He tried to and he failed. You have failed. And look at you hanging on that cross. Powerless. Pathetic. And I wonder if somewhere in those morning hours, while they were hanging there, Mateo quit insulting Jesus. And maybe as he was hanging there, he began to just be retrospective. and Think back on the dreams that he had when he was a kid looking at this hill. Thinking about realizing that the sum total of all of his own decisions and actions have resulted in him hanging on a cross. This is what it comes down to. Or maybe, maybe when he looks over at his friend Demas, he also looks at this man hanging between them. And Demas is so filled with anger and bitterness and hatred. But this man, there's like love and Compassion on his face. Anguish, no doubt. It's almost divine. Or maybe while he's hanging there, it's when he heard this man say, Father, forgive them. For they know, who would say that? And maybe he heard, Father, forgive him. Could it be that he's praying for Mateo? And he stops insulting Jesus. Luke 23, verse 40, it says, But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing. Fear God? Demons would say, fear God. Why would I fear God? God's never done anything for me. Where was God when my dad was drunk beating me up? Where was God when I had to fend for myself? Why would I fear him now? And here are these friends, Mateo and Demas, who've lived their whole lives together and now are dying together. 15 feet apart, and yet a world of difference separates them in these dying moments. Where we get to this final conversation in this second statement of Jesus, we find an unlikely prospect, an unlikely request, and an unlikely response. There's an individual who's completely unlikely, just would, unthinkable. He, he asks makes a request that is so far out there, and the response is even more unlikely. I mean, what does he have to offer? I mean, if he's going to try to ask for something, what is his bargaining chips? Can he say, hey, you know what? 
I mean, I grew up going to synagogue. I kept the Torah my whole life. You know, I, I, I gave the tithe and, and went to all the festivals and, and I, was, I was a good law-abiding. He can't say any of that. He's got nothing from his past that he has to offer. Nothing to say, this is why there ought to be something given to me. And, and currently, he has nothing to offer. I, I can't use my hands to help the poor right now. I can't go anywhere on a mission trip right now. Presently, I can't do a whole lot. And this would be his last day. So there's no chance to promise that tomorrow's going to be different. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going back to the synagogue. I'm going to study the Torah. I'm going to volunteer and help out troubled youth like I was. I'm going to go and help out widows like my mom was. No, he has nothing to offer, past, present, or future. Nothing at all. It's kind of a long shot. And he would ask this question. And maybe as he's thinking there, he thinks back to that verse he learned in vacation Torah school. (laughs) When they were studying Isaiah, and he had to memorize this one. Isaiah 55, 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will freely pardon. Could that be more than a memory verse? Could it be true? And this one who prayed, Father, forgive them, could he help me with this? I mean, it's worth a shot. What have I got to lose? It's like Pascal's wager. I mean, if he's not God, nothing's lost. If he is, oh, what I could possibly gain. Then he said, chapter 20, Luke 23, 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus. It was a common name, but just the name Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua. It means the Lord saves. Maybe even when he says the name Jesus, he hears the Lord saves. Jesus, remember me because no one else is going to remember me. I mean, I'm dead to my family. When I get off this cross, they're going to throw me in a pit. I won't even have a grave marker. I'm not even going to get a good, good burial. No one will remember me. You remember me. Remember me when, not if. When you come into your kingdom. How does he know about the kingdom of God? Where did he get this idea that Jesus would be the king of a kingdom besides the sign, maybe? Was it because he had maybe heard some of these things? Maybe when Jesus would draw the big crowds, he would actually work the crowds because he could pick some pockets and it actually was very lucrative to follow this Jesus around. Maybe that was it. And maybe just he had heard about this kingdom of God. Or maybe it was the prophecies that he had studied when he was a kid that there would be this kingdom that would come. Or maybe it was just a divine revelation, but at this moment, this man hanging on the cross is the only one on the face of the planet who even believes that there will be a kingdom. The disciples don't believe it anymore. Mary's mother, Jesus' mother Mary, though her heart is broken, we'll hear more about her next week, she doesn't believe in the kingdom anymore. All the crowds that used to follow Jesus, they don't believe in the kingdom anymore. Only this guy hanging on the cross 
seems to believe that there will be a kingdom. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. So here's this conversation that's happening. And Demas over on the other cross, it's like in some respects, they're identical. They're both career criminals. They've both been condemned. They're both being crucified. They're both in pain. They're both going to die. They both need forgiveness. Both of them do. Exactly the same situation. And they can receive or reject the only one who is able to save them. Demas looks past the man in the middle. Mateo looks to the man in the middle. Now, said we would get to the second statement of Jesus. We're there. Luke chapter 23, verse 42. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Jesus said, I'm not, not going to pull any punches with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. I'm not going to give you false hope. I'm going to tell you straight up the truth. That, that's that, you know, verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen. I'm going to tell you the truth. You can rest assured on this. This isn't wishful thinking. This isn't some hopeful thing. This isn't just an idea. I'm telling you the truth. And I wonder if he says, I'm not sure that I want to hear the truth. Because I know the truth about me. And I know what I deserve. And maybe he's just going to reiterate what I'm already experiencing. That is the truth. But here's Jesus who not only says, I tell you the truth. Here's Jesus who is the truth. And there's all kinds of truths that he could say to this man that are absolutely true about him and his past and his sin and what he deserves and all of those things. But the truth he says is like beautiful music, like a swan's song in his dying breath. Beautiful music, a truth that will set him free. And I wonder... We talked about last week, because it was so difficult to exhale, so difficult to talk, if this statement came out one word, one phrase at a time. I tell you the truth. Today. Not someday. But today. Today you will. Not you might or what we can hope for. Today you will. You will be with me in paradise. This man has spent every day of his life running from God, but this day he's going to be with God in paradise. This was supposed to be his last day, his worst day. but it became his best day and the first day in the kingdom. Listen, if a dying Savior can do that for him, then imagine what a victorious risen Lord can do for us. And if a man who has nothing to offer, past, present, or future, nothing to put on the table, can receive that grace, that's good news for all of us. And if a man who has spent his entire life running from God, rebellion, breaking the laws of God and man, and if in his final hours God could orchestrate things to bring him into the kingdom, then there's hope for your son and your daughter and your parents and your kids and your family and your friends who are far from Jesus. 
Their story is not done being written yet. And God is pursuing them and loving them and longing for them to experience his grace and his love. This is our story too. In Ephesians chapter 2 it says, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Nothing to offer past, present, or future. It's by grace that we have been saved. See, this second statement of Jesus, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise, that's a promise for us. That's an eternal promise that after our days here on this earth are done, that we can have eternity with Jesus. That's a promise, but it's more than a promise. It's not just for a then and there, it's for a here and now. I tell you the truth, Jesus would say, today you'll be with me. See, it's the invitation of living with Jesus today. Every day. And there will come a day, and all of us and your family and friends will be sad. There will be a great day of rejoicing. There will come a day when this invitation becomes the promise that you'll go to spend eternity with Jesus. But until that day happens, it's to remember that Jesus invites us. to the shadow of the cross and hear him say, I'm telling you the truth. Today, this day, you can be with me. Whatever you face, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever temptation, whatever joy, whatever victory, Let's do today together. See, that's why I want us to keep this cross. Not as a good luck charm. Not even as a reminder of this sermon. But as a reminder of the words that came from the shadow of the cross. I tell you the truth. Today. Let's do this with me. Well, that's all I got time for. <laughs> it's going to close in the song, but we don't have time for it. Why don't you stand up? Hey, those of you online, you can stand or you can just stay sitting. I can't see. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I pray that the truth of these words, not only the promise for our eternity, but the invitation for today, that we would live in that reality. That even this day, this Sunday, that we would walk through life with you, Monday, Thursday, every day, and to hear you whisper, good morning, I tell you the truth, today, I'm going to be with you. Walk with me. I pray this in your name. Amen.